Hi, everybody. Welcome to our next podcast on Trechnobabble. This is Matthew. And this is Kevin. And today we are going to do the Voyager Season 2 finale, uh, Basics Part 1. And it does say Part 1 in the in the title card, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's like, folks, you're getting a cliffhanger, whether you like it or not. Um, did it do that? That didn't do that with Best of Both Worlds. You know, I'd have to go back and rewatch. And you know, there's always a difference sometimes between like the original aired version and what they eventually uh, re-air in syndication. <laughs> so uh, it's entirely possible it didn't say Basics Part One uh, the first time around. Though I think it did. I I, I want to say it did. I think it did, and I think so. The Memory Alpha page has Part One as the episode title, and they usually stick to what was the script title. Right. Right. Um, so I think it was called part one. Anyway, that's a, a minor point for nerds to think about. Um, you know, we're coming at the end of season two here. An uneven it's had, season. It's had its ups and downs, uh, two specific, very down downs, uh, but quite a few decent episodes, if you ask me. Um, I mean, it's still not going to end up on the happy side of 6.0, uh, well, based on those two... <laughs> horrible episodes yeah there's the question how much does death wish make up for yeah i mean well there have been a fair number of good episodes even beyond death wish um but man you get in a lot of previous seasons of different shows that we've watched uh you know there there's been like one code of honor you know one move along home and usually there's not sort of a one-two punch uh, although I guess in season one of TNG we had Code of Honor and Angel One, uh, so that that might be a, a relatively comparable season. Um, did TNG end up under a six? I think it did. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, TNG season one uh, ended up at a five point <coughs> seven something, just under the animated series, which was also a five seven something or yeah. a five six something. I think TNG season one was a five seven. I think almost flat, and then TAS was like five seven one. It was like very, very small, but definitely less than. But it was below average, as we have well, and and that's really average. a measure of how uneven the series is. You know, TAS was pretty much uniformly slightly below average. You know, yeah. Whereas well, a couple episodes, TNG yeah. season one and T- uh, Voyager season two, you know, there have been really good episodes. Like Tuvix was wonderful. Um, you know, we both liked. Uh, Life Signs with Dinara Pell, Death Wish was quite good. Um, Meld, we both really enjoyed, which of course we'll see uh, some of that come back in this episode. Uh, 37s um, was above average. Um, yeah. And an enjoyable episode. Uh, well, and there's a good, uh, big stretch of, you know, just solid uh, six ratings from us, you know, our, our combined ratings. So. It hasn't been a bad season. Non sequitur, we liked. Um, you know, there's a lot, yeah, thirty sevens, like you say, uh, was enjoyable. So it's not a bad season. Uh, it just has two outliers that really drag down the average. Um, I think without those two episodes, it was going to be like a six point one or something. So it's a lesson for all you people who, you know, are going to college or something. Those outliers really skew your your average, uh, so try to avoid them. 
anyhow, so some prefatory remarks with respect to basics. Uh, I guess Michael Piller was the one who was arguing for number one, a cliffhanger, and number two, that it be the Kazon. So there was talk among the writing staff about maybe having different villains, uh, but Pillar felt that they should conclude the Kazon arc. You know, they should finish the Seska baby storyline. Uh, he thought it would be the natural sort of end cap to whatever's been done with the Kazon. Uh, I mean, would you have wanted to see a cliffhanger with, say, the Vidians or some new enemy? Well, I obviously would have preferred the Vidians because I would rather have anything with the Vidians than the Kazon. That being said, if the intent the intent was obviously to end this and never come back to the Kazon again, and that's a good idea. I guess I would have been more annoyed had there been liter- had the Kazon just literally disappeared without a word. I guess that would have also felt stupid, especially with the setup of Chakotay's alleged baby. Yeah, um, I mean they had to follow up on that at some point. Uh, they didn't kill the Seska character, so it seemed clear that they were leaving it open. It would have been a pretty big dangling thread uh, on the level of, say, some of the Enterprise dangling threads that were not picked up on, like the Temporal Cold War. Um, But that's a whole other barrel of fish. Um, I don't know. Maybe we should just get started and we can talk as we go here. Okay. I'm ready to go on my end. Yes, uh, we should all get ready at home with whatever media we have, and we will all press play concurrently in three, two, one, press play. So we pick up on Suter. Uh, You know, the teaser here is kind of like a two-part teaser in some ways. Um, anyway, Slice it, I'm happy to see Suter again. Uh, you know, I, we thought Meld was a great episode. Uh, it's love Brad Dourif as an actor. Oh, he's, he's right? so great. He, uh, he throws himself so hard into the part. He just, it's a joy to watch. And it's interesting to see that Tuvok and Suter have reached kind of an uh, equilibrium you know, Tuvok seems to be clearly in control here, right? And Suter seems subordinate. Um, you know, and they're picking up on continuity touches like uh, Tuvok's love of orchids and horticulture. Um, so, I don't know. This is... Uh, my impression from the, the Memory Alpha material is that this episode wasn't very highly rated, or even very highly regarded. Um, and I can imagine if you tuned in and you're watching these guys, you're just like, who the hell is this guy? You know? Uh, but for a fan, I think it's great. No, it's, it's nice service. It's a great guest actor. It's a great idea. It is just inherently interesting. His Betazoid contacts always freak me out. Of him trying to, you know, help with the aeroponics bay is not as gripping as some story ideas. Uh, You know, maybe it would have been more interesting if he had had to leave his quarters to do it, you know, like be escorted out. Uh, 
because of course he's been uh, confined to mostly solitary confinement. How do you feel about the the meditation, you know, dialogue? I, I like the way the actors are selling it. Um, other than that, I don't have a ton of deep thoughts about uh, about uh, meditation dialogue. Haha. <laughs> um, okay, and here we go. The, I I just rewatched this episode in preparation for getting ready for this episode, uh, for for this review. And I remember really liking this episode in my memory. I remember liking the setup and it's dramatic and blah, blah, blah. But a second time through, with uh, it, it falls a little flat for me. And it starts right here. Had Admiral Akbar himself appeared on screen to intone the words, It's a trap. It could not have been more obvious to me, and I believe every viewer at the time, that this was a trap. Well, I mean, the fact that the signal is being routed through some sort of buoy, which would take that much planning, you know, um, but that involves this sort of uh, dramatic footage. Um, I mean, it raises questions of what cameras are in this uh, timeline, you know. I mean, we've had lots of, like, is the camera, like, just all over the room and it can follow you around? Uh, is it, like... A single unit, part of the, these sort of like laptop-looking devices that people have on their desks. Uh, is it part of a tablet computer? Um, so, it, it to me, I agree with you. Um, I'm just curious, like, what would cause static? You know, what would cause the camera to shift uncontrollably? Um, like, it makes dramatic sense for us who have cameras like we have today or in say 1995. Uh, but I just wonder what it means for this 24th century uh, setting. Well, it's also just too perfect by half, isn't it? I mean, it, well, and they acknowledge that in the dialogue, you know, immediately after the credit sequence, uh, you know, Janeway basically says, you know, this is a trap, you know that, right? <laughs> and Chakotay agrees, you know, like, so they do acknowledge it. it. At the very least, the crew doesn't act stupid, you know, in order True. to advance the plot. True. And so if you were worried about that, which is a legitimate worry because, of course, many a Star Trek episode has functioned in that way, uh, I, I do think they do a fair job of surmounting that worry because the next ten minutes really is all about them – figuring out how to not get caught in a trap. Now we can argue about whether they, you know, do that effectively. And I will eventually argue they don't. I mean, it's like, yeah. given how... Uh, I'll, I'll save it till we get there, otherwise we'll have nothing to talk about. Um, it's, it's, it's good character work, I'll say that. I have no problems with this scene, certainly in and of itself. And I actually really like it. It says a lot about... Janeway's command style, her assessment of the situation, like she knows she can't just order Chakotay not to follow up on this. That yeah. would like that's just not I, I mean, aside from whether or not it's, you know uh what's the word I'm looking for? It's just not emotionally practical. She uh, as a commander who's qualified to command, she has to understand you you can't ask certain things of your crew and expect them to keep doing their job every day. That's just not a thing. 
So well, it's, it's especially good character work for Chakotay because he is being given dialogue that pretty well establishes that he really is conflicted. Like he doesn't want this kid. He feels violated by the creation of this kid, but he also feels a sense of responsibility, you know? And so we cut right to this, uh, you know, Akuchi Moya scene. Um, I would have liked some recognition of the month or more that they spent being emotionally intimate with each other in just the previous episode you know yeah yeah i'm i'm with you there <laughs> i think that is that a fault of this i suppose that's a fault of this episode it, you know maybe there are production reasons why they wouldn't know or something but that i feel like that's not the case right? well, I'll, the, I'll say this this is one of those places where uh much like uh marina Sirtis and jonathan frakes i think the actors could have infused a scene even without writing and that's something I don't think the actors, either as a pair or maybe they were told not to, or uh, but they they never really carried through. Like there's times where it looks like their friendship could blossom into something more, but it doesn't seem to have the notes of we spent an incredibly long time only in mutual solitary confinement. It doesn't seem to have colored well, their sleeping relationship in the same room, you yeah. know, like ba- listening to each other breathe, bathtub, building each other headboards people, and bathtubs. bathtub. I I will never stop emphasizing how intimate that come on people how many people have you made bathtubs for seriously um this scene with this father is is really good um yeah this is henry darrow who played colopec in the previous kind of so-so episode about the the indian stuff uh but it's really good because it's got a really good emotional uh sort of story right yeah uh i I like we talked about this a little when they introduced the stuff. I like the use of the technology to induce the hallucination um, as opposed to, you know, doing it chemically. Uh, like, I, I, I like that makes sense. Um, I, don't, I think that was a nice touch. Um, I eventually have issues with the kind of, you know, with the kind of cultural grab bag that Chakotay's Indianness eventually becomes. But this was interesting. And I... I like this. I like the conversation they have here. It's a very mature one for the topic. Well, yeah, I mean, this is Star Trek kind of at its best, acknowledging an historical uh, reality without beating you over the head with it. You know, it makes you think about how you would react or how your culture would react, you know, to uh, unwanted children uh, being created. Uh, the actor is doing a heck of a job. Um, both actors, really. I mean, we, we've had negative things to say about Robert Beltran, and we will certainly have more in the future. But when he's given good material, he delivers. You know, it's like you you can see an inner life behind his eyes. Yeah. You know, uh, when he's not given good material, he doesn't do well in the background, <laughs> and that's probably you know. Uh, speaks to his professionalism or something. I don't know. Um, you know, someone like uh, Frakes or Sirtis, you know, who frequently were not the focus of episodes, like you said, you know, they would do things in the background that would make their characters still interesting, even when they were on the periphery of the screen. Uh, and Beltran doesn't seem to do that very well. Uh, in this show, I would say uh, Roxanne Dawson and... Uh, Robert Duncan McNeil are probably the two best at that. 
you know, and probably Tim Russ too. Yeah. You so know. for this scene as seen, you're right. I think it's the scene is short. The scene makes a point elegantly, even allegorically, <laughs> but then doesn't, you know, there's no like half white, half black, half black, half white dudes fighting it out. Like that's a pretty light touch of metaphor to, to make the point about Chakotay uh, yeah. and his son and his son. Well, I mean, what another thing I find interesting about it is that they never really give us uh, a hard stance on what he's actually experiencing, and I like that. I, you know, I would be very disappointed if they said this is definitely a vision from the spirit of his father. That would irritate me to no end. Uh, but they also don't say, "Oh, this was just a hallucination." You know, I mean, it, it's a. It's one of the varieties of religious and mystical experience that Chakotay is, uh, you know, engaging in as part of his culture. And you can take it for what you will. You know, if you want to watch this episode and think that he's literally talking to his father, you can believe that. But as a secular humanist, you can also think, well, this is Chakotay, you know, sort of thinking things through with an hallucinatory, uh, you know, image from his own conscience or his own his own memory right i like that a lot um, i also like the way they discussed his feelings of feeling violated it was a it was again it was a very uh soft hand and i can easily detect the work of jerry taylor in dialogue that kind of emotionally aware it, it found a way to discuss it without i don't know two-dimensionalizing it i guess is the phrase i'm looking for it was a very his sense of what's going on is very complicated. And I think that would be true given the situation. So I, I liked that the dialogue didn't feel cheap. Well, yeah. And you know, there's no yelling or histrionics. It's, uh, it fits very well with the tone of what, I mean, his religious experience is relatively somber and contemplative. Uh, it's not boring though. The scene is not boring. I'm also all. happy that, you know, the, the default cultural norm in the Federation seems to be people get to decide when and how they become parents. That makes me yeah. happy. <laughs> so we have uh, sort of a long discussion scene here, you know, talking about, like I said, you know, they know it's a trap. So at least this episode has that going for it. And they are trying to come up with, I mean, they're setting up a lot of the action later here. You know, they're saying what their plans are. You know, we're going to do this holographic stuff. Uh, you know, they're setting up a, a joke, which is coming up uh, later in the episode. Yeah, I will say, I think it's what, Future's End, when uh, the Doctor finally gets his hollow emitter. And I'm glad yeah. they do that, because th they've leaned on that, excuse me, Doctor, or oh. I'm interrupting the Doctor talking on the comm panel. Why aren't there more than one comm <laughs> panel in the meeting room? Just saying. Um, yeah. that, they lean on that joke a couple of times, and I'm really glad well, that they eventually stopped. I mean, this ship was designed to be a cruiser that fight against, fights against the Borg, right? You know, they, they didn't expect to well, be talking to their holographic doctor all the time. So I will agree with you that some of the features of the Kazon slash Seska plan seem a little too cute, like oh, this so, guy. Okay, here's... Um, okay, so... We get it. The guy's a plant. Okay, that's fine. He blows himself up pretty dramatically. Now, yeah. the thing about explosives is the, the nature of an explosive agent, be it, you know, chemical or um, nuclear, whatever your system of explosion is, 
you are quickly releasing, <coughs> nothing else, you are releasing energy faster than the stuff in the room can get out of its way. That's what makes it an explosion. How could they not detect that? Whatever is in yeah. the system has to have so much potential energy that to take it apart and put it back together again should give that away. Like, even yeah. two inert substances that, you know, when combined make the explosive still register as there's potential energy here and it will be released under the right circumstances. That Yeah, I mean, I guess we have to believe that it's some kind of future technology that the Kazon have access to, number one, and that uh, is so uh, surreptitious that, you know, the most advanced medical scanners in the world would not detect it. Uh, you know, we're, we'll get there when we get there. The scene where he does blow himself up, you know, I just, I'd really like to know how he could hide things on his person, you know. Um, it's it's worse than, say, the Philodiston chip uh, that Admiral Jarok ingests, right? Because, you know, maybe they wouldn't really search him completely, you know, like do a cavity search or something. But it seems like this guy, who they know is part of a plan, who they know is a trap, it seems like they'd, yeah, you know, they, they would run him through everything a dozen times. <coughs> but more than that, what is kind of, I don't know, what, what I don't like about the way this plan functions is it needs this guy to get on board the ship and to deliver a certain kind of story to stick with it and to kill himself. You know, it's like, but yeah, given the case on, we've gone to this point, wouldn't his response just get to the ship and be like, hi, I was sent here to blow myself up, but I'm clearly not going to do that. Here's all the details of Seska's plan. I wrote yeah. it down. like he would cut a better deal. Like, even if they dropped him off on another planet far from Kazon space, Voyager is just by its very nature capable of offering a million better deals than Kulla could possibly offer him. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you can have unlimited whatever you want out of the replicator. We can, yeah, take you to your own planet where you can be the ruler, you know, whatever. I, I agree, and I think that might have been the better story angle, you know? It's like this guy was a plant, and he tried to reveal as much as he could, but Seska also didn't trust him. And so she had, you know, contingency plans or whatever. And he could have been on the show for a couple weeks, you know, whatever, or been killed, uh, you know, in the attack executed by the Kazan who eventually take over the ship. Right. I mean, yeah. I think there were better story angles, uh, to take. <coughs> so I, I'm not a big fan of the Tirna character here. Also, the fact that in dialogue they mentioned that this Tierno was responsible for Chicote's uh, interrogation and beating, right? I don't see why they have to do that. So It's always nagged me. We've talked about this before, but it has always nagged me how big Kazon Space apparently is. We have been at a clip of high warp for two years, right? It's two seasons, about a season a year. I understand it's not strictly you know one solar year for one season of the show but it's about that the way they refer to it in the aggregate certainly reinforces that notion how are they still in the middle of this ragtag ill-defined ill-equipped water-starved people yeah 
yet they have a you know quadrant spanning empire um what did they just enter that code into does the kazon defense net have like a login screen that anybody can try to hack the password and password that code seems to be relatively uh you know vulnerable to a brute force attack by a computer that's thousands of times more advanced than even the ones we have today uh, it seems like they should be able to blow through an eight character uh you know code in about four seconds Okay, here's where the episode has another problem for me. The, 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 there's a bit of a pacing issue until we get to the actual capture of the ship. Because it's almost like, okay, this is a neat shot. I won't, I won't deny that was a well-done rotating shot of the ship at warp. Nicely yeah. done, people. Not good CGI. But it's the same thing. And they make a point. They tag it. It's like, well, it's the same like gadfly attack again and again. But it kind of strains credulity that no one realized what, like, after the second or third time that they attacked they the They might same, start doing a study to figure out what that secondary processor would... Could possibly, right. And I can't believe, I still refuse to believe that the self-destruct system doesn't have a backup. <laughs> so now we're kind of abruptly switching back to the uh, suitor storyline. Which I don't hate. I mean, it's like they're trying to develop it. I mean, they're really only spending a total of four minutes on suitor in this episode. Yeah, I, get, I suppose my problem is all we're doing is doing the groundwork to establish, oh, right, he's still on the ship. Yeah. And I, I would have liked another full episode with him. Like, Yeah. Because, <laughs> totally. I mean, the, the actor can obviously carry it. Like, it would, like he is a font of Star Trek-style ethical gray issues. He could save the ship. Like, what, what if he survives Basics Part 2? Like... He he did save the ship. That that doesn't necessarily um, undo a murder, but we yeah, see. Don't to you cut him a break, right? Like like, what are the ethics here? Like, we would accept, you know, mental instability as diminishing his capacity. Would superior mental stability alter the justness of his punishment? Like that's that. Those are interesting questions, um, and it would have been fun to ask them with this character. What if we get to a point where? we literally can't have a person on the ship not producing that, that the resource situation is that if we're going to spend replicator rations and oxygen on you, you have to have a purpose. What are the ethics yeah. of that situation? Um, that lots more fun things could have been done with the suitor character. And Duraf is a sufficiently talented actor uh, to really make that worth the time. I don't understand why Janeway needed to come here. Like why they couldn't have just talked over the comm. Yeah. I will say Durf did a really good job of acting like the so enthusiastic about to lose control thing. Yeah. That came off oh, definitely. really perfectly. No, and thankfully for us, we're going to get a fair amount more of Brad Durf in the conclusion to this two-parter. Uh, so at least we have that to look forward to. Yeah. 
I gotta say, uh, some of the lighting schemes are rather dark. Yeah. Th- throughout this episode on the ship, they do kind of hang a lantern on it <laughs> when uh, Maj Kala comes on board. Uh, we'll get there. Yeah. So I mean, it's like it mentions, like it rates a mention in the captain's log that they know that the secondary command processors are, you know, continually being damaged. So I agree. I don't think it rises to the level of some of the stupid behavior that we've seen in some episodes or some movies, uh, but it's, uh, I agree. It's kind of left dangling. So does this guy, like, have a security escort and he can just kind of go where he wants? Uh, he has quarters? Like, what the hell? And that's that's the other aspect of this plan that irritates me is – how does Seska know where he's going to be so that when he apparently kills himself in Seska's service, uh, he will actually do the damage that's needed, right? Yeah. It seems like there, there are a lot of variables. <laughs> you know, they could just keep him in the brig. Is the explosion big enough to you know damage whatever needs to be damaged from the brig as well as from quarters on decade? Um and his motivations, I mean, I guess he is a plant, so his motivations are opaque because he's not really motivated by what we want him to be. Um, I don't know. I don't love this character. I don't love his role in this story. Yeah, it. So this is what I'm saying. Like, we're in the middle third of the episode, and there's a bit of a pacing problem because it's just the same tiny Kazon attack over and over again. The Tirna character kind of doesn't make sense either to the, you know, internal plot or to the uh, fake plot. Like, it just... This is also... Well, let's say that we wanted to fix this without radically altering it. Would you want to emphasize the suitor stuff more? Like, have this basically be a suitor episode with the little things with the Kazon story sort of building toward the end do you see what i mean yeah i like they could have spent 10 or 20 minutes on suitor and had these gadfly attacks uh you know just punctuating the suitor story but then it turns out that the gadfly attacks are leading to a broader um thing right i I think i would have just liked had we wrapped up the (coughs) trap plot sooner I i think the and I'll, we'll discuss this more in our review of the second half of this, but I think the idea of the crew spending a prolonged time literally roughing it could be really interesting, and it gets resolved pretty quickly. I think had we gotten to... Like, I, I think, as crazy as it sounds, I think the best solution to this episode is to make the capture of the ship happen in the teaser. Yeah. Like, find a way to just dispense with it, or, you know, start in the middle of them on the planet... And figure, and then we can, you know, work in a few necessary flashbacks or a few conversations um, of the with the Kazon on the ship could, you know, fill in the gaps for how this all happened. Um, and then I think we could have spent a lot of time really exploring something interesting, like Janeway's whole, like the whole reason Janeway's out here was because she didn't want the certain technology to fall in the hands of the Kazon. Now that's happened, and they're stuck here. That's got to be a one-two psychological punch to any leader. 
and to her perceived leadership ability. Like, you know, rightly or wrongly, even if it would be completely unfair um, to uh, blame her for, in a way for getting them stranded and then losing the ship on top of it, I think it would be a fun episode to watch Command break down because she blames herself and they blame her, even if it's irrational for them to do so. That could be a cool episode. Yeah. I just have to interject. Uh, I thought Ethan Phillips did a really good job of appearing to be totally freaked out by Suter, you know, and trying to have a friendly face, but obviously being extremely uncomfortable with him. So now at about minute 26, the, uh, the sort of action stuff is really starting in earnest. You know, we've got multiple ships. Um, I kind of liked the way these sort of space battles played out and the way, um, they portrayed the decoys actually leading to at least a momentary escape route. Um, I thought the action was well done. I thought it was pretty exciting. And yeah, so maybe, I, I agree. It was like, staged like you say, well. It, yeah, it had some movement. Well, and so maybe if they had started just earlier in the episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think had there been one or two fewer iterations of the tiny attacks, maybe a lot of my pacing problems would have been solved. Yeah, I mean, this bridge is so dark. I'm not saying I want, like, a J.J. Abrams Apple Store bridge, but, you know, seriously. Well, I, I think it's this knee-jerk thing we all, like, it, I think it, you know, Star Trek Two really did it because they were leaning hard on submarine warfare as the mode in which the battle was taking place. Um, and then Deep, Deep Space Nine just dug in well though i guess voyager came first before the defiant um but the you know same thing it's like it's like part of the mood of suggesting you know we're we are now bearing down you know hunkering down for battle the lights are off yeah it just seems like it might it's like someone will trip and fall i think you could because they can't see the stairs read the glow panels in the dark like that well and granted the buttons are lit up and stuff but you know, if you've ever tried to use a remote in the dark, you know that, <laughs> you, you know, there might be some erroneous button presses because of it. I really want to know how the Kazon maintains ships that size, because the relative implication there is that that's a behemoth. Yeah. Well, like equivalent to, say, a Galaxy-class ship. So here goes Tierna, you know, is he praying? Like, is there some kind of Kazon religious thing? Like, if they're going to make him a suicide bomber, I think they could have done interesting things with the psychology of that, you know? Like, situate it within the Kazon, you know, culture. Make it so that we understand why he's doing it, you know? That's an awfully big step Yeah, like to kill yourself. we get some you know, thin pieces here and there of, you know, Kazan honor, you know, blah, blah, blah. But still, I thought this joke with the doctor here was just completely unnecessary. Like, I <laughs> love Robert Ricardo and Robert Ricardo is a funny man, but I just thought this read pretty flat to me. Like, it's just, how is it possible that turning on the decoy ship moved the doctor from sick bay to outside the ship? Like, that just... <laughs> well, I mean... 
how did healthcare.gov not work right? You know, I, th- I think that's apples and oranges, technologically speaking, but I'll let it go. <laughs> no, I think healthcare.gov and projecting decoy Talaxian uh, cruisers outside of your hauling space are they're quite analogous. And so I can totally see how it would happen. <laughs> I'm teasing. Of I'm aware. I'm, um, uh, you know, it was like five seconds. Yeah, it, they didn't. The they episode. didn't make it last too long. They certainly, they happily didn't do it again. But still, well, and like, which ship do they destroy? Right? Like, is the lead ship sort of holding back? I, I don't know. How could he smuggle some sort of explosive trigger in this toenail thing? How would they not have just scanned him and said, huh, he has an artificial toenail? Yeah, with I a mean, needle in it. They can find when people have cyanide capsules yeah. in their molars today. I, I didn't love the effect that they oh, did. Oh, I know. The CGI that's coming up is not good. It is not good. Well, it's like he's inflating like a balloon or something. It's kind of strange. I mean, in some ways, the plot structure of this episode is uh, really interesting and and a little bit strange uh, because in a lot of ways, there's sort of like three main portions of the episode. You know, there's the setup, there's the action, and then there's the sort of denouement where they strand them on the planet and stuff uh so we're like in the middle third right now yeah i just like i said i i think the most narratively juicy part of the episode is stranded is the crew being stranded i also have a problem i kind of find it hard to believe that kala wouldn't just execute them yeah yeah that that conceptually that is the biggest problem with the story uh you know, it, it's sort of like a Bond villain explaining his plan. Right. You know, and it's like uh, you have to believe that the minute these people find warp capable stuff, which is likely going to happen. Uh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe you think there's no chance that they survive and that no one will find them and, and so on. But yeah, why not kill them? That's a big <laughs> risk to take. Yeah. Well, it, it's, is it like poetic justice? I mean, like, what's his motive for that? Well, he says and... that. How, how fitting an end for the people who wouldn't share their yeah. technology. But it's kind of like, really? That's really? You're a terrible leader. Yeah, maybe the most fitting end would just be to, you know, kill their asses. You know, as far as a plot thread, I like the idea of Paris, you know, trying to reach help um, and leaving it dangling. I mean, I hope that anybody, you know, with half a Trek brain knows that he does survive and he will find help. But, you know, I thought they did it pretty well. Yeah, I get that. But, like, by the end of the episode, we have Paris in a missing shuttle. And um, what's-his-face, Suter in his quarters, unaccounted for. I mean, it's like, the episode kind of tipped the hand of the exact... Like, I understand the good guys will eventually win. But as long as you get the good guys to their victory in an interesting way, I actually don't have a problem with that. Like, you know, like, 
I know there's going to be another episode, so yeah, that's fine. But they telegraphed the exact means of saving the day in the end of the first episode. Okay, and here we are at the the, the secondary command processors are apparently the only the primary thing, yeah, self-destruct like, processors. Yeah, that seems crazy to me. So some nice action here. Um, kind of question whether they had phaser set on kill yeah and i refuse to believe seska would just kill them she's she's not to you know stereotype here but she's a cardassian i'd be willing to believe that she has some sentimental attachment you know maybe they could have played that up maybe maybe kala could have wanted to kill them and seska could have convinced him to just maroon them and that would have been in, because yeah and i think I martha hackett okay that, yeah. yeah martha hackett can absolutely sell the complicated amorality of her character certainly um i will say after the introduction of the fake pregnancy whatever plot i think the seska character went a little off the rails i'm sad they killed her but i was kind of over her at this point there became a little too much like it's and it's not the actress's fault but there was a little like you know you 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 mentioned bond villains earlier like that level of villainy like there was a crisp pragmatism i think in in the villain we got from state of flux like when she says a cardassian ship would be home now there's like a ruthless practicality to that kind of villainy that's not evil for evil's sake the slightly soap opera plot of forcibly impregnating herself with Chakotay's baby just always read a little too big for me in terms of like a credible villain speaking of things I thought were a little over broadly done and I don't know who's responsible I thought the slap on Janeway was a little much it didn't read as like vicious it read as stage acting like now she will stage fall it it just it didn't read how they wanted it to for me I liked it I I thought the scene was well played I I think it was a, a good demonstration of how different the Kazon are. Um, and it, it's an effective dramatization of how low the Voyager crew has been brought. You know, at any other point in the series, had someone, you know, slapped the captain, you know, things would have gone extremely bad for them. Yeah. Uh, and so there he mentions how dark it is. <laughs> Turn on the lights. I just, I don't feel like it's any more dramatic you know, like, had this been the lighting scheme during the battle, I think that would have been fine. <laughs> you know, they still have some flickering panels, and they can still have some fr- flickering lights, but the scene could be better lit, and we could see what's going on. Here's the thing that I, that got me on the rewatch that I just hadn't remembered, but she's, uh, one, apparently Cardassians breastfeed, you know, given their yeah. reptilian nature, I wouldn't have guessed. Um, and I was kind of like... <laughs> I hate to say between Brandon Braga, Michael Pillar, and Jerry Taylor, of all the writers I think who would think to depict a nursing mother on TV, I'm going to go Jerry Taylor. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with it. No, I, uh, I'm I impressed. Mean, it's, she's not going to have a ready source of whatever baby formula <laughs> yeah. makeup he uh, but, is. But I got to say, it, it's, it's another one of those moments like we had earlier in the episode where it's like, that was a thoughtful, almost like that was like a really light touch to just portray something that TV normally has issues portraying. So I was I was impressed by that. 
So I guess holographic recall mode is different than just his autonomous ability to turn himself off and on. Like it must hide the program or something. Uh, which whatever, I'm okay with that. Like it seems like a reasonable precaution to have in place for just this sort of eventuality. There's a lot of extras here. Yeah. A lot of extras. Uh-oh. Don't get Harry mad. So they've completely repaired the ship in like six hours. You know, I don't know. The, the Kazan's ability to have everything completely in hand strains my credulity a little bit. If, if this technology is so far above them, it seems like they should be struggling more. Or and and Granted, Seska can coach them, but does she know every system backward and forward? Well, there's a couple of other things in this scene that always that get me about the Kazon in general. The misogyny, I understand it's a character point. I do. I get it. I'm on board. But Seska's just right. It's not even like there's a dispute about which path we should take and is it... No, no, no. Seska's completely correct that you should double check your work here. <laughs> it's It's stupid that he had to be told. And it diminishes it, – it's, it's the thing where it's like, okay, I get it. You, you can't have your woman telling you what to do in front of your friends, but she's completely correct here. And she's been correct at every step of the game since she got here. At some point, you're not just a misogynist. You're also just an idiot for resisting, as pro forma, her advice. Um, so this is CG work on the CG Voyager model with the landing struts. Um, apparently – they did scout a location uh, to put the image in, and they did a better job this episode than they did in the 37s of actually indicating the real relative size yeah. of a ship like Voyager. Uh, the way they portray it in the memory alpha material is that they actually uh, went out there. I don't know if – I think it was uh, Dan Curry – Dan, Dan Curry and Ronald B. Moore visited the location with a teamster and brought a rope. And the rope was as long as Voyager was supposed to be. And so you can see in this shot here, uh, Voyager is actually much larger compared to the way the shot looked in the 37s, yeah. um, which makes sense for a ship that's supposed to have 150 people on it. I mean, it should basically be the size of an aircraft carrier. Uh, can I ask right? another pedantic question? Why not just beam them down? Yeah, yeah. That's not pedantic. I think that's a reasonable question. I will uh, say I did like the acting uh, Kate Malgrew did with the when her comm badge was removed. There's a lot yeah. in her face there. Yeah, she, she's like, you know, if you didn't have a gun trained on me, you know, I would cut a bitch, you know. So nice location work. I mean, granted, we're in Vasquez Rocks, Planet California yet again, but it looks nice. Uh, and it's it's a, a potent image, you know, seeing these people in Star Trek uniforms out in the wilderness. They're dividing the crew into teams. Uh, and they're just going to – it's like everybody knows what team they're on. Uh, <laughs> team Discovery. Um
so th- some of these mountains were added to the scene. Like I think the snow-capped mountains were added. I don't think that's actually there. It's good effects work. Yeah. All right. I, I mean, what I read was that they added uh, <coughs> volcano mountains at least. See, she says, Alpha team here, beta team this way, gamma team. And it's like, everybody just knows what teams they're on? Like, did they do this in the cargo bay? Maybe it's like one of those, if your name starts A through D here on Alpha team. Yeah. Maybe they had a meeting like six months ago. In the event we're ever captured and marooned on a desert planet. And remember, this is the desert planet team arrangements, not the jungle planet team arrangements. Okay, so th- that volcano has been added. There's um, not a volcano. There's not an active volcano in Southern California. There's a CG monster, and we also have uh, proto humanoids on the planet. Thankfully, they're not 15 feet tall. They are wearing pants with legs and shirts with sleeve holes and that always it's it's one of those little things like (laughs) pants as pants are actually relatively speaking you know on the grand scale of human development a fairly recent invention the ability to make like seamless thing like knitting the, the certain clothing crafts are not as old as mankind's first steps on the earth everyone was wearing shifts and togas for a reason um it just it's one of those things that customers like i understand trying to come up with a pair of pants with like clothing with the correct archaic construction methods would probably be too big a pain in the butt but it always gets me it's like they wouldn't have had sleeve holes like and a raglan sleeve i I do it i my roommate taught me how to knit once so i learned these things but it just it's like one of those like that of all the technological anachronisms on an on a planet of primitive people the way they make sleeves is usually the big one that sticks out to me because that's the kind of stuff I pay attention to. What was the point of Tiernard blowing himself up? What did that accomplish? Like to cause more damage, I guess? Well, it, it's like those attacks were focused on one key subsystem, you know, so it seemed very surgical. Like, what, what did Tierna blowing himself up do? Okay, the compositing in that shot with the shadow passing over the people was not great. The shadow yeah, work... It's not, it's not bad, though. It's, oh, it's certainly not bad. I think it's one of those for-the-time things. I think the sound design was good, too. I liked how they had the sort of bassy, swooping sound going over the crew. <clears throat> All right, to be continued, dot, dot, dot. Um... <sighs> At the end of the day, this episode is entertaining. It's exciting. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I stand by my... Uh, I, I, we're starting with writing. I stand by my issues, both with the pacing in the middle and the too complicated by half trap. Um, I think those remain valid criticisms. I think had we gotten to the marooning about 15 minutes sooner, we could have had 15 more minutes of really interesting stuff. I think to some degree they are going to get to that in the second part. So, you know, there's that. Uh, 
yeah, my main criticisms are the the undue cleverness and coincidental uh, nature of the plot against Voyager. Um, on the other hand, uh, a fair number of the character scenes were pretty good, especially the Chakotay and Kolopak scene, uh, but also Chakotay and Janeway. That was a nice scene. Um, you know, certainly everything after they get marooned was well done. I think you agree with me there. Yeah, yeah. Which is why you wanted more of it. Um, hmm. I think, yeah, I think the writing has hits and misses. Uh, as far as acting goes, I can't really focus on any bad aspect here. Was there a terrific performance? I mean, Brad Dourif was good, but he didn't get as much to do as he did in Meld. Yeah. In Meld. Um, I thought Kate Mulgrew was good. I thought Robert Beltran got some standout scenes. Uh, but nothing was transcendent, if you ask me. No, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, like, everyone did what they were asked to do. Well, and they did it well. It wasn't just phoning it in. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, certainly. And the acting lent itself to the general exciting uh, tone of the episode. Production values... Um, there were a, a lot of space battles, um, and they were pretty well staged. They looked good. You could follow them uh, on screen. Yeah, you know, uh, good the wide one shots. shots following the Kazon ship under Voyager, so that like the ship rotated in three dimensions uh, while at warp. That was that was a well achieved effect shot. I like the location work a lot. Um, you know, I mean. <laughs> Say what you want about using the same location over and over, but it's a good location, so it works. Um, some of the CG on the Voyager landing was not terrific, uh, but it certainly wasn't bad. It was just kind of average, uh, and I'm sure it would look better recomposited in HD, so we'll see if that ever happens. I hope it does. Well, I, was, I found an article online, actually, that apparently the effects work uh, a lot of the CG stuff was found recently, so that if they hmm. needed to re-render it, it would be nowhere near the daunting task, like, prohibitively daunting task they thought it would have been. The problem is that article's, like, about a year old, so I don't know how much movement there's been on that, but... Well, I think it all depends on the sales figures yeah. for TNG and Enterprise, well, and I know I've done my part. I, I've so. done what I can. I can't buy more than one copy. That's just not a thing that's going to happen. <laughs> Um, you know, so I hope I hope we do see an HD Voyager. I, I think it's worth it. Uh, we'll get we'll get to grander questions of Voyager's place in the Star Trek universe at some other point. Um, I mean, for me, it's between a three and a four uh, overall. And I feel like I gotta go with a four. I think it's entertaining enough. I think it's uh, it did what it needed to do. Are there nagging problems? Yes, but did they achieve the stated goal? Uh, the goal stated by Michael Pillar of creating an exciting cliffhanger that could actually inject a bit of uh, life into what some have seen as a you know somewhat lackluster season. Failure. I think it yes. did. Uh, you know, before I sat down to watch this uh, the other day. I would have agreed with the four without question. 
I am leaning more toward a three now. My nagging problems are really nagging me. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do. It. I'm gonna go with a three. The the two complicated mechanisms of the trap, the whole Tierna subplot, and what I think is the pacing problem caused by the repeated attacks in the middle of the episode, I think hold this to entertaining, but average territory. Huh. That's understandable. Um, yeah, I think there's a good argument for either one. Uh, it, it was very borderline for me, so uh, I, I'm just going on sheer entertainment value. You know, I am never not entertained by this episode. And that can't be said for a fair number of episodes, even some threes, uh, but certainly of twos. Um, and I think this episode has more entertainment value than average, uh, even if it has uh, less internal cohesion than some three episodes. Um so, season two. I mean, uh, what do you think? Well, uh, looking at the numbers, um, it rates about, I want to say, either just at or just below. I'd have to go back and double check the other seasons, but TNG season one, a little bit better than DS9. Uh, season three, about maybe about the same. Which actually, that, that, that sounds right to me. Like... This this is almost like the prototypical TNG season one. There's some high highs and some low lows, and some flinging about in between the two. Other seasons that landed softer in the numbers tended to you know they they were just weak seasons. This has a very season one feel for, of TNG for me, where it's like great, great, terrible, great, great, terrible. And that, I, I think, kind of typifies, especially the back half of the season. We, we were building some good momentum uh, in the first half of the season with largely, you know, threes. But then we hit, uh, what was what was not great? Twisted was pretty weak. Um, Tattoo was boring. Uh, then we hit Threshold, uh, an epic crime against everything. Um, the Thaw, like, yeah, it just... Oof. I, and even some of the uh, like there were two Bolana episodes that I like because I like Bolana so much uh, Prototype and Dreadnought yeah and they're they're interesting ideas and Roxanne Dawson bless her heart she tried she tried well part of the problem was they were practically the same episode you know it's like Bolana struggles against a technological thing alone you know, in a room. And, and it's uh, a testament to the actress that she can talk to the computer for an hour and actually largely have it work. Um, but the episodes were still pretty soft. Yeah, so I agree. Uh, twisted, parturition, um, you know, threshold, dreadnought, prototype. The production values really let down prototype. Uh, the thaw, you know, innocence. You know, these were pretty lackluster episodes that are very, like you say, uh, very much like the lackluster episodes of a uh, TNG season one or a DS9 season one through three. You know, I mean, what would you say about them? I think you might say that they don't have to be Voyager stories. 
you know they're just like scripts that they picked off the slush pile and turned into episodes you know it's like there's nothing about them that recommends them as great voyager stories uh on the other hand there are four or five truly excellent episodes uh which are very much voyager stories you know non-sequitur we liked um meld was great life signs well meld for instance you know that's a great voyager episode because you have this sort of patchwork crew that's full of people who are might have unsavory backgrounds and why would they you know what why would someone be attracted to the life of a you know mercenary or raider or uh gorilla right you know people who are attracted to gorilla warfare tend to be pretty unsavory types right uh so the the meld story in particular is a very voyager tale for me um what else were you mentioning? I think non sequitur is a good Voyager yeah, story it, it because it, it's got these the Voyager and it requires the Voyager setup to tell. Same thing with Meld. The yeah. na- the narrative stakes come from Voyager's unique position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, life signs. I think you were just mentioning yeah. life signs. That might be closest to something that could fit in 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 you know like TNG that could be about data or something well it could be about data but it is about the doctor and a particular voyager enemy you know yeah their disease like their their struggle uh i i see what you're saying i think it was really well done um it was a good romance uh tuvix you know tuvix it certainly does um hark back to some of the previous uh, second chances and enemy within right uh, other transporter duplicate episodes, but it does something new and interesting with it. And I think it does it in a very Voyager way, which is um, the problem it creates is really a problem for the captain. You know, is she the one who can make this call? That's really been a Voyager theme from the first episode, you know, like, will Janeway make the call? And she does, in that case. Uh, what else do we have? The 37s, you know, like, feminist icons meeting, right? Yeah, yeah, that was great. That seems like something you can't do on TNG, let's say. Yeah. Um, hmm. So... Like, it's not great. The season is not great, and it's not as consistently strong as season one was. You know, season one was uh, pretty good, you know, and it didn't have any of the huge lows, and that's that's really what sets them apart. You know, season one was 15 episodes. It didn't have, like, that extra 10, right? If you had just taken the best 15 episodes of season two, they're pretty much the same level of quality, right? Yeah. I mean, don't don't you think so? Yeah, yeah. I would I would agree with that. I you know, I think what Voyager has going for it is it you know, we're in sort of the uh sweet spot of the nineteen nineties Star Trek company. You know? It's like these guys are seasoned professionals and even their average episodes are done at a level of execution that makes them a lot of fun to watch, you know? Um 
but you know, I think the the weaknesses come from kind of flailing around and trying to find what are Voyager stories, which I think was something that plagued DS9 too. You know, which of these are actually DS9 stories? Which of these are actually Voyager stories? Uh, so I guess the the odd one out is Death Wish. I mean, what do you think about Death Wish as far as being a Voyager story? Um, it doesn't have to be a Voyager story. I think they could have told... They, it's not a TNG story. I'll say that. Because I, I think um, we've tread the ground of Picard's approach to life, the universe, and everything so well, and that's not a criticism, um, that that episode would almost be a foregone conclusion when it happened. Uh, seeing how, like, you could have had Cisco in the in that position and have a different set of standards and responses and politics at work. We could have gotten the Bajoran position on assisted suicide. Like, there was... It's a platform for this show to tell us something about itself, and I'll, I'll say that. It doesn't have to be a Voyager story the way and that was my that was like my one criticism of the show i think the other um the q stories on next generation had to be next generation because they form the narrative bookends of that show and the q episodes elsewhere never achieved those heights but that i still think we got something enter you know really interesting out of that q story for voyager and we don't get it again the the next two q episodes tend to be a bit more isn't it fun watching these people do stuff like it's not that same they never really attack an issue that deeply again yeah i agree with that anyhow as seasons go uh i don't mind watching it i think season three is going to be stronger um and really each season of voyager pretty much i'm not sure if this will be the case but in my mind, I feel like it's going to be a pretty linear, linear uh, improvement from season three through season seven. Uh, I actually think that's the case. We'll see how it works yeah, out with the we'll numbers, but that's how it feels in my mind. Like Voyager just kept getting better. Um, you know, season one accepted. Uh, season one was sort of a shortened blip, I think, uh, as a mid-season replacement or something. Um you know, season two, there's too much Kazon, right? Uh, and we're happily going to be out of that phase uh, relatively soon. And, um, you know, there's a few tonally extremely unfortunate episodes, you know, uh, Threshold and The Thaw, of course. Uh, you know, eh, I don't know what to say. I still like Voyager. I understand why people think that season two was kind of a downer or lame or boring or something. I don't agree entirely with them. I think there are bad episodes, but there are quite a few good ones. Um, I don't know. Where are you on Voyager? Hmm. I will say my rewatching has given me a deepened appreciation of, of several actors and characters and plots. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about this looking over because I was comparing the seasons we have reviewed and ranking them uh, just, you know, sorting their fi final numbers. Uh, obviously, TNG three, four and five top of the game top with a bullet. 
Um, next up is, you know, a couple of seasons of the original series, then the rest of Next Gen and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and then, like, the, the dregs of DS9 and Voyager so far. And I try to, I keep asking myself, why do I still get excited by Deep Space Nine in a way that I have not been by Voyager? And I, I've, I finally landed on thinking it's just that, um, Deep Space Nine was the perfect show for me at the time it was on. It is the awkward, gothy teenager of Star Trek. It's capable of greatness, but is kind of awkward and moody. And I just responded to that because that's where I was in my life when I watched it. I don't know where I'm going to land on Voyager. Season 2 obviously doesn't... You know, if you don't like Voyager, Season 2 taken in its totality is not going to dislodge you from that assertion. But by the same token, I think if you like Voyager, season two is not going to dislodge you from that assertion. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I, I'm try- I, I remain steadfast in my attempt to be open-minded. There are things about Voyager that got under my skin as the show went on, and I'm sure it'll I'm sure I'll be able to better articulate it once we get to the Borg. Um and what happened on that front. But beyond that, no, the the some of my favorite Voyager episodes, and I do have them, are in this season. I, I like I liked um, Life Signs. I liked the sort of credible, not ridiculous romance portrayal, and I liked Death Wish. It's just a cool idea that's incredibly well acted. Um, what else? Uh, so yeah, there's stuff here to like if you want to like it, and there's stuff here to, like. It, it, it's yeah it, whatever your position on voyager there is something in season two to support that belief um but i'll, I'll say this i remember let's see this this ran coterminous with uh season three of d space nine right or was it season four hmm. uh, season one of d space nine occurred in season six of tng Season two, season seven, season three, season one. Okay, so this so, is running. This is right, running. With that, season okay, that's four why we did season four, Deep Space Nine first. Season four, by and large, represents a substantial, crazy uptick in the interest, quality, energy of the series of that series, and maybe that's part of it too. Like I was real, like even watching Deep Space Nine the first time through, I remember seasons one and two were kind of a slog that I got through because I was still watching Next Gen at the time and it was Star Trek and I was going to watch it. Voyager hit its soft spot when Deep Space Nine was finding its voice. So that, you know, I just realized this sitting right here in front of my microphone. I've had, I've had a realization. Part of my opinion of Voyager as that I like it less than Deep Space Nine was that Deep Space Nine hit the great stuff right when Voyager hit its stumble. So maybe maybe that's part of it. Like at a time when I was like, you know, after two seasons, you go, well, what do I think of this? Eh, it's okay. It's not great. It's okay. And ooh, look, D Space Nine just did cool stuff with Garrick. I'm gonna go watch that. Maybe that's maybe that's part of my like feeling on the show as a whole that I just it it stumbled at just the wrong time in comparison to the other show I was watching. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it was a weird situation to have shows competing against each other. I certainly think. DS9 suffered by being on at the same time as TNG. Well, it's just like, talk about being like, you know, the valedictorian's younger brother. It's just, even if that show were perfect, I think to Star Trek fans, it would just never, like, 
you and I certainly are not capable of talking about Next Generation without, like, the warm, glowing, warming glow of nostalgia infusing our voices. It's, like, our favorite thing in the world. And there's no way another show, especially while it's on the air... I mean, season six and seven were not the best of Next Generation, but they were still really good. Yeah. Um, So so what you were saying about your feeling for Voyager, I think is actually somewhat similar to the way I feel about Deep Space Nine. Like, Deep Space Nine, for me, was always like a pale, you know, substitute for something that was terrific. Uh, whereas Voyager was like, oh, good, they're doing something kind of like TNG again, but they weren't competing with each other. And so in my mind, it, it was like, it wasn't TNG Part 2, but it was better than deep space nine as tng replacement and, and i get that and like i said i think especially like i think it's also why i watched babylon 5 for as long as i did and i will say this hands down even given the worst of deep space nine that we've seen deep space nine stands up far better to rewatching as an adult than babylon 5 but that's a separate podcast um i think deep space nine just hit a perfect spot for me where my tastes were changing and broadening it at almost the same arc and in the same directions as Star Trek was going with Deep Space Nine. So I think there's just like a sinking of what I wanted to see in my entertainment. But, you know, in the balance, I'll say this. I don't hate Voyager. I never really hated Voyager. I may have said things that were extremely dismissive of Voyager, (laughs) but that was really just... Because it's fun to debate things. You watch nerds get into it, you know, pick a position, and they'll and we just, you know, academically stick to our guns. I will. I am fully ready to for the possibility that um, almost every season of Voyager will be mathematically better than almost every season of Deep Space Nine. I'm fully prepared for that to happen. I will still like Deep Space Nine more because they're my tastes, and I can do what I want. Um, but I'll say this, as as badly as Season 2 looks by... I'll say this, the numbers for Season 2 are deceptively bad. They're not the real story. Like, another season like TN... Like, even like, you know, like the animated series or Deep Space Nine Season 1. Like, those are more... No, that number's that low because there were problems. There are problems. For this season, that number isn't quite the whole story. Those outliers really do just jack the numbers. Like, we should go back and and do, like, median mode and um, all that, for you know, standard deviations for all the seasons. Because I bet you season two will have some wonky numbers in comparison to, like... Yeah, those handful of just epically awful episodes. I don't think there... Is there another season where we've given more than one, two in the season there can't be many i think it's only tng season one um you know like even the... even the weakest of deep space nine there was move along home there was fascination maybe even fascination we might have given that a four it's entirely possible we gave fascination a four um so it's yeah there's just never been a season where there was a two a two and a three and i was being nice to twisted like, I basically gave Twisted a, a two because I really liked, um, was that one, was that the first episode with the, uh, with the, her, uh, Jane Eyre, Rebecca fantasy? 
hollow oh. novel. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Yeah, maybe that might have been what saved the season from getting three it's twos. It's got Carolyn Seymour, you know? Yeah, yeah, Carolyn Seymour gets you two. Yeah, K- K- Carolyn Seymour as one of the ministers in Angel One would have gotten that episode of two. Probably. Oh, God, that would have been great. Go back in time and fix that. That would be genius. A <laughs> matriarchal society led by Carolyn Seymour is a show I would watch. Well, and so Carolyn Seymour hitting on Commander Riker instead of that awful 80s feathered do chick. You know what? On... They could have had a Mrs. Robinson moment, and I'm sure it would have been fine. Hey, you could read all kinds of things into Toreth and Riker's Exchange and Contagion if you wanted sure. to. Slash fiction writers depend on that very thing. All right. Well, I think we've plumbed the depths of Voyager Season 2 here. Um, I agree with you, Kevin. I think uh, the numbers don't tell the whole story. We can't give it a pass for having two horrible stinkers, you know, like – it's not like someone else put those episodes into uh let's put it this way they're not like loxana episodes you know it's like you can kind of in your mind say well that wasn't their fault (laughs) you know uh you know that they didn't have to do whatever the boss's wife wanted right here there there are no loxana episodes you know there's no free passes it's like braga was responsible for threshold (laughs) You know, and the creative staff here was responsible for how the thaw ended up looking and sounding. Um, and feeling. So we shouldn't just give a free pass, uh, but there's, it's really just an uneven season. You know, dizzying highs and terrifying lows. And and some creamy middles. There's and some plenty, creamy middles. There's some. There's plenty of sixes in here. I, I really want to run a full batch of. Uh statistical analyses comparing like season one of next gen season two of voyager and maybe seasons one and or three of deep space nine because season one oscillated faster for that first half but settled into a groove about the halfway point where they started hitting sixes consistently Mm -hmm. i really want to see how crazy these numbers are like how scattershot they actually are I'll, i'll i'll get to work on that there'll be we'll do a whole post of uh numerical regression or, or something but it'll, it'll be great that sounds good uh like a money ball type star trek evaluation um sabermetrics on star trek all right anyhow i think that's enough <laughs> uh live long and prosper everybody we'll right. see you for ds9 season four five right? five. Oh, wow okay we're getting far yeah we're what what are we gonna do with our free time when we're when we're done? I don't know. Maybe we'll just have to slow down the pace to such a degree that we basically don't end Trekno Babble before our own expected lifespans. Well, what, what, we can do it like uh, like uh, what was it? Uh, Xenophon is the one with the arrow paradox, right? Zeno Zeno's arrow. Zeno, right? So we'll do we'll do half the remaining episodes and then half those remaining episodes and so on. Yeah, we'll never get there. That might be the nerdiest thing I've ever said in my entire life, and that is up against some stiff competition, let me tell you. Oh, well, we could talk about Xeno all you, all you want. Uh, you know, I've taught classes on it, actually, but <laughs> um, there are certainly worse fates, aren't there? It, what if Heaven slash Hell were just rewatching Star Trek over and over? 
well, yeah, I could I could handle that. I could deal with that. Do I yeah. get to pick the episodes? No, you just have to keep watching all the way through. Okay, as long as it's all of them. Because if it were just like Code of Honor over and over again, that would actually me and Sartre that would be would be in hell together. That would be yeah. Oof. I don't know. I think I could deal with that. <laughs> you know, like. Is it just Code of Honor and you never, ever have seen anything else? Or Code of Honor, but you still have a memory of good Star Trek? I think that might be worse. I think that might actually be more <laughs> torturous. Like, like knowing that somewhere out there is inner light and you just can't get to it. That eternal seeking would eventually drive me mad, I think. I feel like Code of Honor is kind of so bad it's good, though. Well, it... it... Yeah, I mean, no vaccine, no Lieutenant Yard. That that that's some great writing right there. Well, obviously, I find him attractive. Really, obviously, because I can't imagine anybody finding Lutan attractive. Okay. Right. Once again, we have diverged from the point. But hey, it's our blog, and again, we can do what we want. Uh, anyone listening to this, you just you brought this on yourself. Um, all right, we will be back for Deep Space Nine season five, uh, a good season, a, a if memory serves, a very good season. So I am very much looking forward to to starting that. Yeah, well, I think I'm appreciating DS Nine more, and certainly uh, after season four, my appetite is whetted for season five. All right, have a good night, everyone. Yep, live long and prosper.